So much of the time, shareholders look at profits, they look at P&L, they look at revenue growth. This kind of time of crises, it's too late to start paying attention to the balance sheet. You have to have been thinking about that in advance and have the capacity there to deal with a shock to support yourself. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. As you just heard today's guest, Gordon Orr, observe, resilience is something that organizations need to build into their DNA long before a crisis arrives to test their mettle. And it falls to boards of directors to ensure that management is well prepared for a wide range of potential future shocks. Today, we continue our series of conversations about board perspectives on the most important issues that organizations face. As you may have guessed already, today's topic is resilience and the board's role in helping foster a resilient organization. To answer that question, Fritjof Lund, global leader of our board services work, is joined by two guests. Gordon Orr is a non-executive member of several corporate boards, including Lenovo and Swire Pacific. He's a former McKinsey senior partner who's lived in China for over two decades. He established our firm's practice in China and was regional chair of Asia for McKinsey. Gordon also led McKinsey's internal task force in 2004 and 2005 that analyzed the lessons from the 2001 crisis to help build resilience in the firm. Also with us today is Martin Hurt, a senior partner in our Greater China office and the global co-leader of our strategy and corporate finance practice. He's one of McKinsey's most experienced client counselors on strategy, growth, and business transformation in emerging markets, and is co-author of the book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. Frischoff, let me hand things over to you. Thank you, Sean. If there's ever been a year where corporate resilience has been stress-tested, it's uh, over the last 12 months. In today's episode of The Board Perspective, we um, thought we'd dive a bit deeper into what role should the board of directors play in building resilient companies. Martin has been driving a lot of McKinsey's research on resilient companies, while you, Gordon, have a lot of experience in handling this as a board director. Let's perhaps start a bit with the basics. What do we mean by the term resilience, Martin? Broadly speaking, resilience refers to an ability of a company to weather any sort of crisis well. So to be prepared to deal with an unforeseen event, an accident, or more commonly used now in the last few months in the context of a major global health or economic crisis. I mean, Martin, I don't think it's really fair to say it's about being unforeseen. As a board, you know, we don't, you know, criticize ourselves for not having anticipated that COVID would happen in 2020. We would criticize ourselves for having not included in our portfolio of risks that we discuss and think about something that would in- include the kind of impact on the business that COVID would deliver and Therefore, we would have thought about some of the key actions we're going to have to take. Yeah, so I would concur with that. Uh, It's both unforeseen and predictable crisis. The one thing that I think we find that's in common is that companies who are aware of how crisis of various nature would affect their economics generally tend to be better prepared. And that's what piqued our interest when we drove the research into resilient companies. 
So we took previous economic crises in particular and looked at companies and how they fared. And we defined resilient companies as those who were in the top 10% of shareholder return outperformance through and after the crisis. And we tried to understand on a very granular level who these companies were, what they did different than the non-resilience, and how that then played out over time. Yeah, I mean, the share price metric is, is clearly critical, but how well an organization, a board, and management did during the crisis, I think you have to look at the degree to which there are externalities versus the preparedness actions you have taken in advance and the actions then you have taken during the crisis. The share price of the companies I'm on boards on, the range is a decline of 50% to an increase of 200% during the crisis. And I'd argue that the biggest factor and the difference between the two is the, the nature of demand. So I think it actually does make sense to differentiate a bit between the actions companies take before a crisis strikes to prepare themselves for the expected impact of downturns, where maybe just the timing is the uncertainty, and actions companies take once these externalities hit. How do you think about that? I, I to- totally agree. You know, I know a lot of shareholders think that the sort of the annual enterprise risk management exercise that boards go through is a tick the box thing for for the stock exchange requirements. But I, tell, I mean, if it's done well, it's the foundational element of of being prepared because you do get to discuss what are the what's the range of risks that we're facing uh, and how do they play in particularly into the financials. And what I think the overarching takeaway that comes out of that process is, is often, you know, do we have enough capacity in the balance sheets to deal with the shock? So much of the time, shareholders look at profits, they look at P&L, they look at revenue growth. You know, this kind of time of crises, it's too late to start paying attention to the balance sheet. You have to have been thinking about that in advance and have the capacity there to to deal with a shock, to support yourself. Let me just uh, sort of dig down on that a little bit uh, because I find that a fascinating topic. Uh, Let me just refer to a story uh, from the previous crisis, 2008-2009, where we worked with an Australian real estate company, very large scale, and the board had asked us to help them, I think in 2006, we helped them think through how their economics, balance sheet, PL, cash flow could be impacted by certain events happening in the world. And in hindsight, I think in 2010, they said we sort of didn't believe and only did half of what we believed. In hindsight, we wished we had done everything because, quite frankly, what we did saved us, but we could have done a lot better. So when you just think about what you just described as the board taking action, doing risk assessment, developing an understanding of the impact of various factors on your economics, there is then a next layer, which is how do you engage with that knowledge, with management, and how many of these actions are actually being taken? Well, I mean, the, the, the whole development of the risk map and the risk plan is not done in isolation of management. In fact, you know, management and the risk team, the CEO, the CFO, uh, they're doing the heavy lifting. And we as the board are doing 
you know, the challenging, the stress testing, the, the adding to it. But um, the particular challenge that we had this year in several industries that I'm involved in is it wasn't just a COVID crisis. We had a geopolitical crisis. We had a social stability crisis. You had multi-dimensions piling on top of each other amplifying the effects of what was going on and increasing the chance that something that might have been an incremental set of changes that you had time to react to and turning them into to discontinuities. We've had over the last four or five years, you know, increasing levels of geopolitical risk that many companies have been facing, particularly in the, in the technology space. And some of those have, have intersected with COVID in the last 12 months. But the, the issues around market access, security of supply, whether suppliers will be blacklisted by governments and the need to to reconfigure supply chains almost instantly in response have, uh, I think, reinforced one other dimension of what we're talking about. That's the takeaway of avoiding business initiatives, activities that are never going to that, that could create value, but are never going to create material value if they're potentially highly risky, because you could get a disproportionate impact on the business in return for relatively small levels of return. Just w when we're starting to discuss, uh, as you said, Gordon, the role of the board relative to management and not overstepping the boundaries, um, what if you're listening to this and you're a board director, I mean, what are the questions you should ask uh, management? And, and when do you sort of intervene? Is it through the strategy discussion? Is it through the risk uh, review? I mean, what are the arenas and what are the questions? I mean, in the preparation of sort of, of sort of in the anticipation, understanding of what risks a company is facing and what the, the impact could be, that's generally first going to be debated in depth in the audit and risk committee, working with the finance team, probably the strategy team from management, then that would get elevated in a synthesized way and discussed in the full board where you have the broader set of experiences and perspectives from board members to, to stress test and challenge. When you get into these moments of truth, I think the dynamic between the chairman and the CEO becomes incredibly important because they're going to be talking daily, certainly many times a week on what's going on and the need to inform the board, the need to inform shareholders, potentially the need to get the board together to not just provide input, but to make decisions. You know, do we reach out to the government for support? Do we need to make a communication to investors? Do we need to resize a business significantly? those kind of decisions. And I think, you know, as a, as a board member, you know, this is the moment, that, you know, when you show up, when you make yourself available, and whether it's by Zoom or in person or some combination, this is, this is what in some senses, I think, if you're a quality board member, you've been preparing for, because these are the difficult decisions, and you have to make them quickly. You know, one of the factors that we have seen, especially in this pandemic, that made a real difference was how quickly companies shifted their operating model at the top. So how they collaborate at the top team, how they make decisions, at what pace they're making decisions, and how do you support those processes with, let's say, war rooms or 
teams that are providing a synthesized version of the external information that's being gathered, structured into scenarios in a way that decisions can be taken with confidence. When you think about what you just described in terms of the process of how the interaction between the board and the management changes, what role does the board play in your experience in triggering those operating model changes? And when do they happen? When do they not happen? Yeah, that's a really good question because the whole judgment between acting too fast or just hanging on and hanging on in the hope that things are going to turn around is really tough. The role of the board, I think, is to often just at a first level be a counterweight to what management is suggesting to to take the to cha- to take the opposite point of view and to challenge and say well why are you saying a when you know the opposite of a is equally valid the second is to is the stand back and take the strategic perspective that you know you want management to be doing firefighting at this point in time because there's a bunch of fires and you need to put them out and you need to change your supply chain or to put packages in place to deal with deal with people and you know when you've got a factory in Wuhan or when you've you know got offices in places that are severely impacted, how do you deal with those? And then you want management to be doing all those things right. And the board perspective of will things ever get back to the way they were before? Or what is the post I think as you've talked about in Martin, the po- what does the post COVID world look like? Will people be more digital, you know, will the will the whole, you know, will the business model that we've used before ever come back? And that's the role of the board, I think, to to make sure you're having that perspective, that set of questions, and say, okay, do we need to start to make decisions that that take us in path down path path A versus path B? You know, I love your notion about decisions because one of the big insights we had from working with literally hundreds of leading corporations during the crisis was that especially in the period of the crisis where the uncertainty is extremely high, in that period of time, this notion of not just focusing on firefighting, although firefighting is important, and not just focusing on the long term, but focusing on key decisions along the entire timeline. And the emphasis on key decisions, not all decisions, but the key decisions that are really crucial. To illustrate what I found, for example, is that a lot of companies struggled with exactly the point you made before about accepting stimulus because they had learned that in the 2000 and 2008 crisis when many companies, especially in the U.S., were very quick to accept government support. Even months later, they started regretting it because it came with big strings attached and to get out of it was really not easy. And that's just one example of a decision that has to be taken possibly in two or four weeks' time, but has potentially multi-year implications. Other decisions, of course, are related to employee health and safety that are super critical and like a burning fire. And then come the decisions about resource reallocation that you just mentioned about how does the crisis look later, what change, what doesn't change, and how do we need to reposition a company in order to take advantage of that or prevent us from being ending up mispositioned coming out of the crisis. One of the very interesting insights from the research in that regard was that resilient companies, for example, in the beginning of the crisis, divested faster, 50% faster than non-resilient companies, meaning that they were even willing to accept lower asset prices 
in order to create liquidity or to invest it in new acquisitions that reposition them ahead of the trends in order to then come out of the crisis in a better position than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about asset prices because in, in, in many ways, asset prices have not fallen that dramatically during this period because there is so much liquidity floating around in the world. And you, you see that in the, in, in the private equity space in, in particular. You go back to 2001 and 2008, how hard hit private equity firms were. This time around, I think many of them have had much more liquidity or have had the ability to access more liquidity to help them through the period. And if anything, they've been doubling down on investments during this COVID era. Could I also ask you, I think you both uh, touched upon it, uh, but if you, if you take uh, the opposite lens almost, what are some of the uh, caveats, the deadly sins uh, of, of the board, both in the preparing for a crisis, but also handling the crisis? Have you seen any examples that, let's say, boards or chairs should really try to avoid? Uh, I'm sort of hesitating a little because I think my boards have generally been quite quite sensible and practical in what they've done. I would concur. I have to say um, that uh, that point resonates with me, Gordon. A lot of boards reacted almost instinctively, very positively. Uh, I've met very few CEOs who were, were complaining about how the boards acted in the crisis. I think many CEOs, many management teams experienced the board relationship as a very constructive one during this crisis and a, and a very intimate one in terms of the proximity of the working relationship. Some boards reacted with, uh, I'd say, quite high demands on information being updated uh, before maybe going into more, I'd say, constructive relationships. On, on management providing information to the boards during, during COVID, I think it has been really helpful to get more information. Now, I think what's been most important within that is that, that board and management have a have a common understanding about what is the most important information to have and at the right level of detail. For me, it's a dozen KPIs on the business that really tell you what are the input volumes, what's demand looking like largely, um, and sort of the externalities, what they're doing for that. And getting that on a weekly basis, it's going to management. Just add a few more people onto the, to the distribution list. I'm not asking for new reports. I'm just sh share a little bit more of what you already have. And yes, absolutely recognize when we get back to normal, getting back to the monthly rhythm of information sharing is, is going to be absolutely fine. Yeah, information sharing is an interesting one. It builds maybe in, in the points we discussed earlier about the way boards and management teams through a crisis look at key decisions and the timeframes they're, they're taking into consideration. I would say one of the differentiators that we saw early on, but then also throughout the crisis, is how well management teams did scenarios and used scenarios. Mm -hmm. um, it starts with many management teams using an uneven number of scenarios. If you have three, I would say you're operating in one scenario. If you have five, I would also tell you you're operating in one scenario. Yeah. Uh, the magic of scenarios, you have to have an, an even number and then forcing yourself to really think in scenarios. But going beyond the more uh, trivial to the questions of how do you actually structure the information in a way that 
management and board directors, to your point, Gordon, are sort of on the same page, that they don't have to start every conversation with a lot of context, giving a lot of explanation, but they sort of start operating in the same frame. Having those scenarios and having those updated with the latest information, but on the basis of a set of assumptions that's known and understood by everybody is foundational for this. Once boards and management teams are on the same page, literally, decisions can be taken very swiftly without a lot of frictional losses. If there's always information asymmetry around in which scenario are we actually operating in, what does that mean? Uh, it causes a whole lot of misunderstandings. And this is okay in normal non-crisis times, but in crisis times, there is a huge premium on decision speed and the accuracy of these decisions. So I'd say to add to the discussion we had about management teams and boards, it's almost as important. What is that team that sits next to you that actually prepares that information and feeds the information in a consistent way? And the interesting um, uh, parallel we have is in military. In the military, they call that a plan ahead team which is different from the crisis management team. The crisis management team is out there taking actions, uh, you know, executing decisions, reacting tactically in the field to what happens. That's sort of the crisis team that's out there. The plan ahead team sits next to the decision maker. And the only function they have is to take information in from all sources of intelligence, from what happens in the field, and actually work in these scenarios. And what I also found fascinating is that we have learned a whole lot on how they work best, where, for example, you structure them around issues so that when an issue comes at you, let's say, do we take government stimulus or do we ramp down part of our process intensive operations that will require a long ramp up time later on because our demand is not okay right now? Those major decisions, those are the decisions that then flow into this team and around these decisions, the scenarios are being applied. So there's a set of scenarios that everybody agrees on, and then these decisions are being investigated by parts of the team in light of these scenarios. And then you add more people to look at the next issue that comes. So you have sort of an organic structure that feeds information decision-ready into the board and the management team. Yeah, I want to pick up on the team's point for a second, Martin, because I think effective boards at this point and you know are working as teams it really helps at this point if the if the if the vast majority of the board members have been board members for a while in terms of understanding the business the industry management the level of trust to each other that board members who are not on the audit and risk committee have the right skills and are going to be doing the deep dive so that the synthesis com that comes up to the full board is quality and then the orchestration of the chairman as the leader of the team becomes incredibly important, particularly as you're shifting to these online meetings. It's a different set of chairing skills. You know, the skill of a chairman of running a, a Zoom board meeting effectively uh, is, is absolutely critical to, to, to getting people comfortable that you can make decisions as quickly as we just said is essential uh, and have everyone feel confident and positive about it. You know, the challenge area in this board as a team is board members who have joined the board very recently, who haven't got the depth of sort of just going through the cycles, the annual cycles of where is the strength and the balance sheet or how, how is XYZ 
got to this position in the management team. And It's a fascinating topic, Gordon. Let's talk a bit more about this. Uh, in order to be an effective team, you need to have people be trained up. And you talked about new directors joining who lack either industry context or company context or specific crisis uh, relevant context. Uh, but there's also the broader topic of the board having immersed themselves into what happens in a crisis and how do you react to it and what type of decision typically do you make and how does the management react? How does the operating model change? When you think about these two, so new board members and the board team as at large, what type of capability building, what type of training, what kind of preparation do you have you seen be effective? Skill building and training on the board, again, is one of these things that the sort of investors think boards do to tick the box. But Boards do it because they want to get better and they want to get new sets of skills, you know, when they're looking at, let's say, digital or cyber to say, okay, I need to be smart enough to know how to challenge management on this. And I also am trying to make a decision on whether we need someone to join the board who's, who's really, really deep on this, this topic. And I just picked those as a couple of examples there many others. There's various ways of doing it, obviously. But, you know, coming out of it is where do we feel that we're not, as a board, as strong as we want to be? And how do, how do we address that? And that could be someone coming in and talking to the board. It could be a, a board visit, where, you know, could shape the decision on where we hold board meetings going forward, that we really want to understand the India market better. So we'll go as a board and spend time there as as a group. But to me, it'd be a red flag to investors if they realize that their boards are not conducting a regular program of, of skill development at all. And what about new board directors, sort of these induction programs? Onboarding is a time-intensive process, particularly if you're dealing with a global company, because you should be prepared to, <laughs> under normal circumstances, parentheses, uh, you know, travel around and meet the leadership of the business it's not just you know when management comes to the board but going and spending time with with management on their home turf in their core businesses if it's a b2b business there's almost certainly going to be trade shows going to those trade shows and kicking the tires seeing what customers are asking about the businesses in, in those kind of circumstances uh, spend time talking to investors i mean some of the, the most valuable parts of my onboarding I've been talking to, you know, the large in institutional investors, getting their understanding of what they thought was needed in, you know, in the companies that I'm joining the boards of. And, you know, as a new board member, you know, recognizing what is it that the rest of the board think, you know, is, is hoping that you're bringing to the board. All of my boards have, have board members from at least two, if not generally three continents incredibly helpful, even in this time of COVID, to, to get different perspectives and ideas on, on what, what's happening. What, what do you think will fundamentally stick from, uh, in terms of the role of the chair or the, let's say, skills required or, or the, different, the different dynamic between management and the board? How much will stick going forward? Uh, it's a good question. The role of the chairman's become much, much more time-consuming through this, and I think that may stay. I think the in sort of the outreach to all of the different groups, investors, governments, you know, active. I mean, just the number of stakeholder groups that chairman 
is seen as being on point for. I think the, you know, the one-on-one conversations with the board members to make sure that they're informed and, you know, and contributing, they're not slipping back at this point. There'll be a challenge in many countries of you want, you're piling more and more responsibilities on the board. ESG is an enormous new topic in terms of board time. Cybersecurity is a big chunk of board time um, that wasn't there before. You want board members to spend more and more time. It's, it's not a full-time job, but it's, it's closer and closer to being a full-time job. And I think particularly in Europe, it's a massive problem. You know, you're asking people to show up for 12 board meetings a year plus committees and to do this for a fraction of, you know, whatever metric of compensation that they were getting before. I think that's interesting. Uh, I would also add to that that there's sort of an individual component to it because now that the boards and the management team have worked through this crisis together, I'm sure there's a greater level of intimacy, there's a greater level of bonding, there's yeah. a greater level of understanding each other without having to speak. So that makes it easy, but management teams change, board change. So how long is that going to be sustainable? I don't think that's going to be forever. Yeah. It's going to wear off pretty quickly. The real yeah. question I have is, will the insights that the board had about and, and the management team had about the operating model in a crisis and how to shift from business as usual to crisis mode quickly. Will those insights that really make a difference, will they somewhat be institutionally preserved or will they also have to be relearned? So if we look, look ahead, what are, the, uh, what are the top three things uh, you would ensure to, uh, to have in place to handle a potential next crisis? Well, point zero is, don't try and predict exactly what the next crisis is going to be. You can have a lot of fun doing that, but you'll be wrong. I mean, I think if, if there's anything from the, the conversation that Martin and I have laid out, it's the, the preparation across a broad set of potential risks and crises. Second is lean into decision-making and take decisions the sooner the better in general. And I think this point... Um, that, that comes up, particularly from the, from the geopolitical risk, avoid the small and risky, because the riskiness of many things is just going up in the world that we're in today. So I would uh, conclude with two thoughts. Uh, one is to take Gordon's advice very serious, because he has the credentials. He was the one leading for McKinsey, an internal task force in 2004 and 2005, that looked hard at the lessons we learned from 2001 and build resilience. So he had his hands and uh, his pen on building a resilience plan for McKinsey that arguably helped us steer through the 2008 to 2009 crisis without a hitch. The second thing I would say is that as we're thinking about the next crisis, we shouldn't forget that we're still in a crisis, but we're a very different stage of this crisis. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty We don't know exactly how the viral thing and the vaccinations are going to play out, when borders are going to open up again. We have seen in China that when the, when the virus is domestically under control, economic activity and mobility jump back, the uncertainty drops, and uh, you know, economic growth goes back to what it had been before, if not better. So I think that's fairly clear to predict. It's also relatively clear that that's going to happen sometime in 2021, sort of Q3, Q4, maybe the latest in Q1 2022 for most of the um, countries who have been ahead of the game in ordering vaccines. 
where the uncertainty is uh, to a bigger extent, for example, is how long the stimulus will come. Because if, like in 2008, 2009, and then also 2010, some governments got off the stimulus too quickly, it actually stifled the economy. And this could very well happen, given the strain that the economies have been under in the last 12 months. If the stimulus goes out too quickly, we could see a wave of bankruptcies and um, financial difficulties coming towards us still. So there's still a range of economic scenarios that I think we need to plan with. But what I would stress most importantly from a board perspective is that the trends, the trends that have been accelerated through this crisis are almost certain to stay. Those trends are clear. The question is, are you acting on those trends? Are you acting on the writing on the wall? And traditionally, one of the most difficult things in corporations is to reallocate capital and resources towards new initiatives. Helping the management team accelerate that process of reallocating resources towards those new trends that you need to be ahead or towards those trends that have been accelerated that you need to be a part of is absolutely critical right now. Thanks a lot. Uh, some great points, Martin and, and Gordon. Maybe a last question. As you mentioned, uh, Gordon, uh, spending too much time on speculating on the next crisis, it's a fun exercise, but it might not be that tangible. But if, if I were to ask you uh, both, uh, I mean, what would be your top five watch list of um, potential uh, crisis uh, to have on the radar uh, as a board director or, uh, or a chair? I mean, geopolitics is not going to go away and it's going to affect more businesses beyond, well beyond technology. I think ESG and potential inability of businesses to keep up with the expectations of society and investors on various dimensions of that could cause major discontinuities. And thirdly, I think massively greater levels of intervention by government in business, potentially the return of active industrial policies by governments across many, many sectors. Well, I think that's a pretty good list. I um, would add possibly uh, the risk that I just mentioned before on an economic downturn induced by yeah. a stimulus running out too quickly which could hit various sectors again in, 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 in different ways. I also believe that there is a longer term issue that we have all to reckon with, which is that stimulus has been given out at astonishing rates. And you can now be in a camp that says at the end of the day, when it gets to central bank accounting, it's just a big, big zero that has been blown up and you can just cancel the whole thing out. That might or might not be realistic for certain governments. So how to deal with the bill that this crisis has all cost us. I think that's a, that's a potential crisis that could come, which is sort of related to Gordon's point about government intervention and the role that government plays. Unfortunately, it's not completely crazy to, to presume that the threat through further pandemics or uh, human manufactured pandemics could become a real threat to, to many of us and many corporations. Thanks a lot. Uh, a good list. A big thanks, uh, Gordon and Martin. Thank you, Fritz Schaff, and many thanks to Gordon and Martin for joining today's discussion. We hope you enjoyed it. A transcript of this conversation will also be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search our library of previous episodes. 
We also invite you to listen to our earlier podcasts specifically focused on board perspectives, including cybersecurity, sustainability, and decision-making. You can find those at mckinsey.com slash ITSR slash boards. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. And if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest episodes and insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, and connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.